Hello, some new faces for us, freshening us all up in the afternoon. I think we need some coffee. Turn the heating down a little bit, guys. Make sure you're all still looking lively. I can see Ollie is back there. He's gagging to get back on the stage, aren't you, Ollie? You can't keep away. Um, so we are here to talk about overseas expansion. I've got an esteemed panel along with Grace to help us do that. So um, we have Nick Adams, Vice President, uh, Amir at Globalization Partners. Yes, Welcome. Uh, Dayan, is that how you say your name? Am yes, I getting it right? It. Thank you. Brilliant. Uh, you are the founder and CEO of Laundry Heap. Uh, we can probably guess what you do for anyone who doesn't know. It's, it's an on-demand laundry and dry cleaning service. So it's like a delivery for dry cleaning. Oh, absolutely amazing. Need more of that in my life. And Sarah French. Yes. Hello. Hello. Uh, we know London Partners well here, but for anyone who doesn't, we are the Mayor's International Trade and Promotional Agency for London. Mm -hmm. So helping lots of exciting helping businesses. Helping lots of businesses, thousands of businesses to start up, grow in London and then to grow internationally. Mm -hmm. And Nick, sorry, I didn't even give you a chance to give us your, uh, your sales spiel for Globalisation Partners. So just give everyone a flavour of what it is that you do when you're working with founders. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, uh, we're a business that helps companies expand internationally. So where you have great talent abroad and you want to be able to hire that, but you don't have your own entity, then we would hire them on your behalf. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So first question, you want to export, you want to expand internationally. How do you know where to go? I speak to lots of entrepreneurs, it just happens organically, right? They just, particularly e-commerce brands, they might just, you know, find that they suddenly have customers often in, um, so either near, nearby in Europe or perhaps in the States. And it's just that kind of accidental exports. Sarah, how often is it an accidental thing? And how often is there a strategy? And is, there, is it better one way or the other? So, I mean, given that London, and I predominantly work with London-based companies, and there's a lot, if you look at the diversity across London, so there's a lot of companies that will say, you know, I'm European by background, I've got great relationships, I've got great networks, I can utilise those to, to fund my business or to, to go global or... So there is that serendipity, my roots, where, where my, I, I know the culture, I know what's happening. Um, but then there's also that organic growth. I'm getting orders coming in from, from the US. Um, I'm getting orders coming in from India, China. So there is that serendipity. I would always say use data. So where is your product market fit? Where is it that you, you know that you've got, uh, where is your USP? So I think it, it can be the serendipitous, but I would also look at the data behind it for, for best traction. Mm -hmm. um, so, Dayan, if I could come to you, where was your first export market and how, how did that happen? So, um, in the very beginning, we started in London, uh, so it was our first, first market. And then we, we started looking as a service, like uh, what other markets we can go to. Um, and uh, because our service requires 24-7 uh, operations, so we were actually, um, on one hand, it was really hard to start it, but then once you have 24-7 operations, it uh, gives you this option uh, to provide service elsewhere as well. Um, our second market was Ireland, um, which is like, uh, it's very near, it's very like, like natural, we found it very easy. But then the third one, I think it's uh, more interesting because we went to Dubai right away. Um, and I think, um, 
having these operations already working overnight, it really helped us to be able to go to another market, which is uh, um, different payment methods, uh, different time zone, um, different uh, like requirements from our customers. But we were already prepared for that, so it was much 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 easier when you have these operations. So I think a lot of times the restriction is um, how how do you kind of multiply your existing team to be able to serve uh, all of these other markets, and what do you do in the very beginning when the business is fairly small? Mm -hmm. And I definitely want to hear your thoughts on that, Nick. But before I do, I want to say uh, a big Elite Business Live welcome to Brad Sugars. Uh, I believe you're being piped in from Las Vegas. Is that right? Yes. Good morning from uh, sunny Las Vegas. The sunshine at all, are we? Um, so thank you for joining us. Um, we'd like to hear a little bit about your export journey. So tell us how many markets is Action Coaching now? Uh, 83 countries now, and uh, many of those countries are obviously not just a singular country. You've got to treat them as separate areas within the country, even you know, where I'm based here now. I'm Australian, obviously, but based here in the United States, the US, we almost treat it as seven separate countries uh, within that market. So, yeah, 83 countries we operate in these days. That's incredible. I think that's a really good point, actually, about the US, isn't it? Is that often I come across businesses that think that the US is most like us, right? They speak English, you know, it should be an absolute, I was going to swear then, it's obviously been a long day. It's been a walk in the park, right? But actually, you know, some of the big players, even, you know, kind of Tesco, M&S, there's all these big examples of big UK brands that can't even crack America. So, yeah. Sarah, I'm going to come to you. Why is the US market so hard to and is it because, as Brad says, it's not one homogenous lump that we often think it is? Absolutely right. But I would go as far to say it's 52 countries within one country. Each state has its own rules, regulations, uh, tax, employment rules. And, and you have to navigate that state as you would in any other country that you're entering. And if you get that wrong, there could be some serious financial penalties around it. So it's doing your research up front, making sure that you're getting it right up front, using the support system, advisors, the network, to understand that you're, you're getting it right and you're not falling short of, of regulation issues, tax issues, employment issues. Um, so yes, do look into the details on a state-by-state -state basis. Mm -hmm. And Nick, what are your observations of the US market with the businesses that you work Well, with? I definitely echo what uh, Sarah just said about it. It is very different. You have to take into account that in the US you have federal law, you have state law, you even have city law as well. So it's a very difficult process to ensure that you comply with everything that you need to out there. It's also the toughest market in the world. It's incredibly difficult to be successful in the US. Um, so I think you have to be very careful when you look to go into the US. Uh, a lot of businesses, businesses would begin by potentially looking at distributors or channel markets, how you can get a presence there without actually having to set up your own entity and then hire people. There are other ways you can just test the market to begin with, because the very last thing you want is to try a new market. For whatever reason, it hasn't worked, you pull out, and then it's very difficult to go back in a second time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Grace, I'm interested to hear from you, your thoughts on the US market. Are you in the US yet? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, how, how has that gone for you? And, you know, have you encountered any of the challenges that these guys have just mentioned? Um, well, we originally got in through Amazon. So mm. Amazon sort of shielded us from a lot of that. And even though um, they are things that we're aware of, but 
because Amazon just lumps the US into one and you know you sell on Amazon and you sell somewhere you might see the addresses if you go and look through um, and you see different states it's interesting to look at but I'm really grateful that I've not had to deal with um, each of the different countries and just I mean, it was literally yesterday or two days ago that I asked one of my team members, actually, George, to, you know, find some certain types of people in America. And I said, I knew what, what he was going to come up against. So I said, don't do a search for these types of people in the US. Start with New York. And after New York, go to Texas. <laughs> after Texas, go to California. Um, so we understand that, but we've not had to deal with that through Amazon. Um, we will be with what we're trying to do with the new project that we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's different models, isn't there, for breaking new markets. So if you go with a partner like Amazon, who's going to handle the fulfillment for you, for example, it's a very different model today and you having to build an entire operation in a new country. Um, how do you staff it? So I know we started to touch on this and, and perhaps, Nick, I'll come to you first. Is it best always to have boots on the ground or can you manage things from afar? I think it depends on what your business is and your business model. So there's not one concrete solution for everyone. Um, a lot of businesses would enter new markets for different reasons. You know, you may win a big contract, then suddenly find you need to have a presence there. Um, as I mentioned, I think, you know, if you can test the market without investing too much to begin with, that tends to be a better approach. Um, you will lower your costs as well if you don't have to have that full entity and structure. So if someone else who is an existing organization can effectively resell your products and your services, uh, that could be a better approach depending on what you're doing. I think what is very important is to ensure that if you do end up recruiting a team in another country is that they have the same culture and DNA of your business because that's what makes most businesses successful is having a very particular way of doing something. Mm -hmm. So I think you know if you do decide to enter, whether it's the US or, or China or wherever it may be, ensuring that you have the right people on the ground to really represent your business mm -hmm. is very important. Mm -hmm. Diane, I can see you nodding along there. So particularly to the point around kind of culture and I think hiring overseas. And also, you know, it's a question of whether you parachute in people from kind of head office or from your country of origin, so the UK, or whether you hire locally on the ground. And perhaps sometimes you need a blend of both. What's been your kind of magic source? Well, I mean, like, uh, this is always like, like the barrier, right? Like when you want to, to go to another market and then um, like, like what, um, like, uh, um, it's, it's, it's like, like uh, very often that the investment is prohibiting. So like you, you, on one hand, you don't want to go too small, uh, but you don't want to invest too much uh, in it as well. So I think it's very important to test the market. Um, one thing that we, we've been trying to do is to test the market uh, without going there or, or um, if we have somebody on the market already then um, they're able to help us. Um, but then once we have the first indications, the KPIs are working, we, we realize the business model could work very well there, um, then we would uh, try to hire somebody uh, like very early on. I think it's important to have a mix of having your company culture, somebody with experience that has been um, kind of operational experience that has been doing the service in other markets, but then at the same time to have somebody from the region. Uh, it has helped us a lot in the um, like right away, like we've seen this benefit of having somebody, um, like maybe in different industry, but then um, have lived there in that in that city on in, in that market. It it adds a lot of value. 
um, like right away to avoid a lot of errors that you would otherwise make as a, somebody from London going to New York. Mm -hmm. And actually we'll be hearing from Alison Stewart-Allen tomorrow um, and she is really good on some of those terrible examples of where brands have gone overseas and got it wrong or they've given themselves a, a brand name that let's say just doesn't quite translate into a foreign language. So uh, stand by for that tomorrow. Um, so Sarah, um, what's been your experience on that side, on the hiring side uh, and when people talk to you about tracking a new market. Is it best to always hire somebody, you know, local that speaks the language that can give you some hints and tips so you don't embarrass yourself in a first meeting with a distributor, for example? I've heard, you know, I've worked with lots of businesses and 80% of the companies that I work with all want to tackle the US market. So it's become a very, very popular theme. And I've heard some fantastic stories um, over the years of, of companies that have sent the CEO to do that, that culture inertia, to, to bring in uh, that DNA into the business and to set the foundations for, for that satellite or that subsidiary. Um, and then perhaps brought in other UK staff and gone incredibly wrong because they haven't got that local knowledge. Um, one particular company that I'm thinking about, just off the top of my head, um, it, it actually come down to... Um, to they'd set up a, a, a factory in New Jersey and they needed waste collection and the local person said, no, no. You, you do not change the waste collection, that that is a no. But it's, it's those local, it sounds so ridiculous, um, but it's just those local intricacies that, that can set you up for failure, um, where having boots on the ground really does help. Other companies have, you know, have someone who heads up their global division. So if, if you've got a really, truly international global strategy and you, you're looking to tackle 70 markets and you're on a real growth trajectory, then you will have a head of international or a, a senior leadership team whose sole responsibility is for embedding that culture, setting up all the hiring local staff. Mm -hmm. So there's not one size that fits all, but local knowledge is, is imperative mm -hmm. to any new office, mm -hmm. but getting the culture right so that there's not that disconnect between London or the UK and, and that international, you want it to feel like it's one team to drive your one mission, your values, your purpose. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Brad, I really want to get your views on this. So how have you managed it? Obviously, a global organisation. You describe yourself as a global founder, by the way. I like that. You're not just any old founder. You're a global founder. So what does that mean in practice? And how do you kind of lead from the top with that, but also delegate? Because you can't be in 83 different markets at once, can you? <laughs> No, no. Um, look, I've I got a slightly different opinion to uh, several that have been offered in that we don't test new markets. We go in whole hog. We, we make a business plan, we allocate the capital, and we go to that country and we open that country as if it was the first business we were opening, as if it was the first office we were opening. We, we find that to get the level of success you want in opening any market, you have to 100% commit to that market. You can't just dip your toe in the water, you know, um, you know and, and what was mentioned about the US, you know, when, when we look at uh, the West Coast, the California, Oregon, Washington, 
that West Coast has a totally different set of cultures and a totally different set of standards of employment than, say, Florida does. And Florida, you, and then you got the, you know, the, the South, and then you got Texas. Texas's set of laws are again very different to everywhere else. But you know, when when we go into any market, we 100% commit. The second thing we do is we go we go local. Um, the whole thing of having your culture from the main office go to another office really comes down to who you employ in that market. It's really, you can employ someone that fits the culture of your organization. You don't actually have to send someone from the foreign office to that place to recruit someone with a similar culture to yourself. If your culture is well-defined, in other words, documented and written, and your vision is well-defined and documented and written and, and part of everything you do every day, then you can hire local and do that. We are very, very clear on hiring local when we move into any market because, uh, you know, very simply put, they know what they're doing in that market. They're, someone with 20 years business experience in that market will outperform anyone we can send from anywhere else. They, they just will. Um, when it comes to leading that organization, technology is a very, very big part of that. Um, you know, what we're doing right here, right now, I mean, um, I, I can be in, when you say I can't be in 83 countries, I literally can. Um, I'm on, you know, I'll be on with my team once a week in all 83 countries through video, through webinars, through all of these things. Uh, we have around 280,000 clients that I communicate with every single month purely by using technology. Um, I think that this, the virtualization of the world has made this job so much simpler than it was two and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. But they still like you face to face, don't they? Particularly as a leader. So it's all well and good doing a town hall with all of your people virtually. But, you know, pressing the flesh, as I know the Americans like to say, there really isn't any substitute for that, is there? So, Brad, do you, do you get out and about and go and meet your global teams? We bring them all together. That's we've we've found that the easiest way. We usually do our top 200 people will come into an event once a year in on a global scale. Uh, our people from every market will come together in four separate markets. So we we run the Latin America, North America, EMEA, and Asia Pacific. So we run conferences in all those markets. Obviously, we've had to be virtual in the last two and a half years or two years. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and but yeah, getting to those places and literally, our we're an Australian company, so the bar at the end of the day is very active. <laughs> As I'm sure it will be here too later. Um, so Brad, I just want to ask you. Obviously, you said you go in wholehearted. I mean, I love that, no nonsense. But it is a pretty high-risk approach. Maybe it's no coincidence you live in Vegas. Um, have there ever been <laughs> any markets that haven't worked out? You know, when, when you go into a brand new market and you go in whole hog, you're committed to making that market work. I mean, let's let's look at the highest scaling companies in the last few years. Uh, you've got the Airbnbs, you've got the Ubers. They didn't go into a market and half commit. They went in and committed and yeah, it didn't work the first time around in some markets. They had to go to legal fights to open up and they had to do that, but they were committed to that market. They weren't half-hearted half in that market, they were committed. So we, we've definitely had somewhere we've recruited, well, I won't say wrong, but we've recruited not perfectly. And, um, you know, we've had to replace and we've had to move through, but that would be the same in any office we were opening. If we were in London and we were opening in Edinburgh, we would have to do the exact same thing. We'd have to make sure we recruit right. We'd have to make sure. So I think that 
the the opinion that moving into a foreign country is harder than moving into a, a separate neighborhood in your own market or a separate city in your own market is is sort of a challenge we see every market as just a market um, when, when i'm coaching a business owner i just ask them one simple question how are you going to open in india and and, and they look at me and if the business model is incorrect, when you look at business modeling and you look at leverage, you look at scalability, you look at marketability and you look at uh, the ability for that business or the opportunity size, those four factors come into the ability for that strategy of that business. And most businesses go in with an incomplete strategy and therefore they failed. Someone mentioned Tesco. I watched Tesco come into the United States with a strategy that just wasn't going to work. And if they'd actually had US people on the ground looking at it, they said that strategy isn't going to work. People don't shop that way here. And and so, you know, it's it's one of those things that what we do, we go into a market and even so entering China, where we're a business coaching company and in the UK or in the US or in Australia, in those markets, a business owner will be very forthright and very upfront with the business coach and show them their numbers and share with them all the things. In China, culturally, they're not gonna share with us those things. So we had to be more of an education company in the beginning and then move when we built that know, like, and trust with the client, then they start to open up and share with us their numbers. But we couldn't run the business the same way in China as we do here in the States. We just can't. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think that's an interesting point there around kind of failure, you know, what failure could mean and taking that risk away. Uh, Diane, how long do you give it in a new market? You know, when, it, when it's starting slowly or when things don't seem to be going in the right direction, how, what do you measure and, and how, how long do you give it? Well, so, I mean, we have uh, a number of different pieces of information, right? So we have this organic organic surge, the organic volume that we um, we know is there for for, for the business. Like um, um, I, I mentioned, this like soft uh, soft uh, kind of launch, but sometimes like on a very new market, we um, uh, we've had to just a, like a, like a landing page, which we like registered interest. We wanted to see uh, like uh, what people are searching for, which services, how we can uh, like make it work, and then there is all of this um, kind of additional information that you, you you can get so like like my point is that you don't kind of randomly choose a city and then go there and see if it works like uh, ideally you have you have some information uh, like like to be able to 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 make it uh, like, like, like 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 to give it the, like like uh, the best chance um, like um, but and, and then like once you're there I, I agree like it requires some time um, uh, it, it really depends on the business model. Like it might be like three months, six months. It might be one year. Um, it really depend, de depends. But I, I think what's important is to set the goal very early on, uh, and, and to um, uh, if you have already seen it in other places, then you should you should kind of know what your goal for that market is, and um, uh, and, and 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 give enough enough power to that market. So like like I, I also agree with that. that uh, you you cannot just go extremely wide. Like you you have to commit um, to, to like. Uh, 
you have to give it a chance to uh, to make it work. But then um, a lot of businesses have have uh, like uh, scaled down and focus on something else as well. Like uh, we we've had this as well. Like we've we'll go to a city and then we realize, well, okay, this is growing much slower than other cities that we we've had. So then we had to make the choice: do we invest more resources and kind of like be stubborn about this phase, or um, do we go a second time, which is uh, very often is very hard as well because you have to convince all the stakeholders that you've learned from the mistakes you did the first time around. Um, so it's, um, um, well, I, I would say you have to set these rules um, in advance and then you have to, uh, like, you have to see how it goes. You have to, um, like, like, make sure that you have the right KPIs to look at. And, uh, and when you see that it's working, like, to be honest, like, I've seen it very early on, like, from the first day, uh, you, you, get these uh, signals that it could work, and, but then you probably just wait a bit more just to see that it's not a coincidence or something else has happened. Um, and once you have everything is being confirmed again and again and again, uh, then you can, you can go full scale. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, something we haven't yet talked about is, is Brexit, right? So talking about kind of those signals, I know from speaking to entrepreneurs, I know of several that have pulled out from um, exporting to the EU just for now, they say temporarily, while they kind of figure things out because it was impacting customer, the customer experience, they were having to pay duties on the goods that they were receiving. Of course, it depends on the business. But I think you've got some experience with this, Grace, that you were referring to earlier. And, you know, just of things kind of waiting around, you know, you've got stuff stuck at borders, etc. Has it been an absolute pain in the backside? I mean, we had stock stuck at the border four or seven months uh, before we came in, wow. so much so that we, the stock that we were trying to get into the UK, then back out to America from Europe, didn't make it to America. Most of it didn't make it into the UK, and altogether there were almost seven months delayed. Um, so we kind of, um, I mean, just before Brexit anyway, we were quite gradually not spending as much time on the European markets as we were um, normally, um, just because we also wanted to see what, you know, what would happen in terms of sales there in Europe. Uh, and so we're only just going back in. Um, and even with that, I found a distributor to handle all of that because I'm like, no, I can't deal. <laughs> not now. <laughs> you know, so we found a way to deal without dealing, without us being doing it directly. So we sold to the distributor and they'll, they'll sell in Europe. Mm -hmm. That's what we've done so far. It all sounds very daunting for anybody who's listening, who is thinking about exporting for the first time. Sarah, should they just completely discount Europe for now because it's too much hassle? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wouldn't say discount Europe. Um, if, if you're a service provider, um, obviously that narrows the, the gap between the UK and those European markets. If you have an actual product or a service, I think you need to enter cautiously, really look at your supply chain mm -hmm. um, and you know where are the potential risks within that supply chain? Where could it break down? Is it customs? Is your... Is, is your stock going to be held up um, and potentially you're, you're going to lose out there uh, with, with your customers and your overall supply chain. So what I would say is still have it in your plans and definitely look to Europe, but do your homework now so that you can make sure that you're complying with the, all the new EU rules and that you're 
you can expedite things as and when things are back to normal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's very, very optimistic. It is you, optimistic. Um, and what about you, Nick? What are you hearing from clients about Brexit? How, how are they all feeling about it now? I feel like we all forgot about Brexit for a while because COVID was here, but it's kind of bubbling back up the agenda, isn't it? So I think the one thing Brexit has done is it's given a lot more opportunity to other markets. I, I definitely don't suggest that you would ignore uh, the EU. I mean, it's 800 million consumers, or you know, it's a massive um, area that you can still sell into. But what it does allow is markets that you may not have considered previously to be much more competitive against the EU. Uh, in addition, there's there's a lot of um, great trade agreements in place, uh, relatively new ones with Singapore, for example, as well. So UK uh, trade and industry have definitely done a great job in providing easier ways to do business with the ASEAN um, countries. Different markets have different potential. I think, you know, again, it does depend on your product and your service. Depends on the competitive landscape as well. You know, what competitors exist in the market, what demand and appetite is there. So I think what is very important is before you look at any new market is doing a little bit of research first and trying to understand who's already there, what is the demand for your product, um, can you do that remotely, do you need to have a presence there. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean the EU is still a fantastic market, there's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Brad, do you have any thoughts on Brexit? I mean, people would assume being in the kind of business that you're in that it's had limited impact. Are they right? Yeah, well, I have uh, 11 different companies. So everything from our commercial cleaning businesses right through to Action Coach. Um, look, for us, we are very clear on each market being separate entities. So when we go in, the level of research we do in a market, Nick just mentioned doing your research, we, we are high research on a market before we go in. With Brexit, what it's allowed is more opportunity is, is sort of the way we look at it. We look at what is the opportunity that's created by this change. And every single time there is a legal change, and it's not, you know, Brexit is just one example of that. Africa is, is another example of that in the last, few uh, years we've had many markets reopening or opening or closing so but for us Brexit has just allowed opportunity and it said okay if that market is going to shift where do we want to shift and I think Nick's point is very valuable that it's allowed people to open their eyes to other markets and that's why I think we're seeing a lot of people wanting to open the US and I will encourage people with the US it is not as difficult as most people seem to think it is the US is a wonderful place to do business um, it is far more litigious, uh, so you have to get your legals right. Your legal budget here will be far greater. But um, turning to that market and saying, okay, how do we do business in that market? I guess being an Australian, in Australia, the easiest way to describe the difference between uh, Australia and the US was that Australia, they care about how good are the weedies in the box. In the US, they care more about how good does the box look. Um, and that's probably the simplest way to describe the two. In Australia, you can have great Wheaties in an awful box. In America, it better be great Wheaties in an amazing box as well. So. Good, good tip. Thanks for that, Brad. So we're nearly out of time. I just want to ask a quick question on business travel. So obviously, we've all been stuck on these shores for a while. Uh, things have opened up a lot. Are we going to go back to travelling how we were before? Just quickly down the line here, Grace, I know we were talking about it in the ladies' room earlier, but are you going to travel as much as you were before COVID? I don't think so. Um, 
you know, traveling a lot can be a lot of hassle if it's too much. Mm -hmm. So or, or I do like the balance and being able to decide whether or not to travel. Mm -hmm. uh, I was just telling you earlier that I was meant to go to Dubai this month and I don't think I'm going to go. Exactly. And I volunteered to go in your place. <laughs> you did volunteer. We had. Uh, Nick, how about you? Are you going to be jumping on an aeroplane anytime soon? Actually, Next month I go away for the first time in two years, so um, I'm, and hopefully I'm not going to do too much of it. I'm going to try and do a lot less travel than I, I was used to before. Um, I read a great Deloitte report recently, and they were trying to point out where there still will be a lot of travel, and I think that gravitates around your customers. So certainly where there's customer acquisition and you have existing customers you need to service, you will still see a lot of travel in those scenarios. I think where there's conferences and there's internal team meetings, you will see a lot less. I think the world now has a lot more confidence in doing things remotely, virtually. Um, and of course, the costs have reduced substantially as well these days. Um, I think employers now don't want to have the same cost on travel and commuting and all those other types of things as well. So we will see less travel, but it's going to be much more focused. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to choose one person. Dayan, your tip, please, on business travel post-COVID. Is it that kind of focused travel? It needs to have a kind of business objective, I suppose, at the end of it. Yeah, like, I would say the difference is probably that it has to be more like, uh, meaningful. Um, so, like, um, for for um, if you if you don't really have to go there, I guess like a lot of people would skip to go there. Uh, like one thing we we see from our customers actually, because we have a lot of business travelers that use our service, uh, they travel for much longer uh, these days. They travel less for much longer for more important things and for everything else. Uh, like uh, y you have all these uh, amazing tools that you can use to communicate. Mm -hmm. As we have with this tool here, with Brad being zoomed in uh, by the power of technology from Las Vegas. Uh, Brad, thank you very much uh, for joining us this afternoon. Thank you to all of my panellists. That was a really fascinating conversation. So thank you very much indeed. Give them a round of applause, everyone. <laughs> Last session of the day. That's pretty hard work. So, wow, I think we covered lots of ground there, and I know I'm certainly excited about getting on a plane again sometime soon, maybe to Dubai. Um, for those of you here with us in Kensington, you are now welcome to go and grab a drink in our VIP networking reception, where Ollie and I will join you shortly. In the meantime, Ollie is preparing backstage for his final post-main stage grilling of the day. I know you're into the flow of it now, Ollie. Uh, are you there? Yes, I am here, Hannah. I thought that was a cracking panel. Uh, I've got questions about Wheaties in the box, <laughs> on the box, and so on. And uh, also going full hog, as I believe it's known. But uh, now I'm very grateful to everyone for that. So thank you, Hannah, for that. And as you say, we're moving through this final session and uh, on day one of Elite Business Live. And I'm looking forward to grilling those panellists a little more now. Um, Hannah, we should compare notes on Dubai. As you know, I was there last week. I don't mean to brag. I was going to say, you haven't mentioned that at all over the last 24 <laughs> hours, Ollie. Barely yeah. mentioned it. Of course I, I have. I've also got laundry jokes for you, but they would certainly have you increases, I can tell you now. Uh, Hannah, thank you very much and thank you to everyone in our main uh, studio. I'm going to uh, quiz the guests now uh, backstage. If you're just tuning in, this is Elite Business Live and uh, we're talking about going global. I think it would be great, actually, to get um, some of our guests from that final session. Oh, Nick, why don't you join me if you don't mind? Um, Nick Adams, uh, Globalisation Partners. Uh, I should say, I, I, I thought that was a fascinating big picture view. Thank you. Um, tell me the sort of places beyond Europe that ought to be getting more attention from British companies in 2022. It's a 2022. great question. Um, 
So, we would have said six months ago, if you're looking for great developers, we would have suggested Russia, Ukraine, given the circumstances at the moment, probably not the best advice, we'll have to wait and see. In our thoughts, of course. Absolutely. Um, but there are, there's a lot of great talent all around the world. I mean, even if you look at someone like Melbourne as well, I mean, the cost of talent there is a little bit more, but you have great universities that feed directly into industry as well, so you can have some great graduates. Outside of that, um, what we're seeing is a trend where companies now are confident to hire workers who aren't near their bricks and mortars anymore. So, you know, wherever the best talent lies. So it could be a CMO in London if you're a US business. Uh, it could be, you know, just the right person wherever they are. In fact, we are seeing nowadays some companies actually take into account lower cost jurisdictions as well. So you may actually want to hire somewhere to get the same level of excellence in the talents, but for a much cheaper cost. Yeah, so, so this is a fantastic point, and our guest from Dropbox earlier said, because they're now virtual first, they've thrown their net globally, and that affects things. What about on consumer markets, though, in particular? Because I've led trade missions all over the world, including to Brazil, for example, where they will talk about a Brazil cost. Yes, there are challenges, but it's worth it if you get it right. Where else on that type of location that we ought to be thinking further afield for Brits? Yeah, well, we're seeing a lot of our customers expanding into Australia, uh, into other uh, APAC type markets as well. I mean, Singapore is, is definitely a great market. It's booming. There's, there's a lot of different growing economies where I think a lot of companies are heading towards. Some of them are very easy to do business in. It's very easy to enter them to set up. There are some that I think may sound very appealing, but there's probably a little bit more paperwork to do. So China can be a fantastic market, but you have to be a little bit careful. It's not terribly easy to enter. You may want to go through third parties. There, okay, so thoughts across Asia Pacific, lots yep. of hot new trade deals there. Natalie yep. Black, Trade Commissioner, smashing it out of the park. Um, Nick, I wish I had longer, but I'm going to say thank you for now. Thank you so much Great. for joining us. All right. Very good to see you. Thank, thank you very you. much thank indeed. Uh, why don't I ask Grace to come back up and join us? Uh, Dr. Grace Turgan, Oluk Bodhi. Grace, thank Thank you. Lovely to meet you today. Uh, if you're just meeting Grace for the first time, Grace, you're on a mission to sort of take away maths anxiety for a very large number of people around the world. Where are you on the journey? What, are, you, are, you, are you able to count them? Give me a sense of progress. Um, it's difficult to count, actually, because when we are in schools, I mean, it's, it's easy to count parents. Yeah. Um, it's harder to count kids because you don't know really how many kids per family. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of schools, there are hundreds of students in, in every school, so it's difficult to count, but we're still far away. Right. It, it really varies around the world, the extent to which parents are able and prepared to pay even a small amount of money for their own children's education. Just, just give me a sense globally of where you think really takes this seriously. Yeah, I think that we're starting to see a lot more approach from, I would say, Asia and Africa. Right. Because they kind of see education as a way out of poverty for mm. um, the families who feel that if they don't come out of poverty through education, they've got no other ways. Mm -hmm. So those countries are quite, they, they take education quite seriously. Um, you know, in the UK, in Europe, and generally in the West, it's great, and that's where we've started from, and we've, you know, we've been very fortunate to do really well, but Asia and Africa, I see that they, you know, those are really emerging. If you haven't already seen Grace's keynote, I, I commend it to you, but because we're short on time, Grace, where can we find out more about your current range of products? Where should we go to? 
Um, Amazon, we're, we're on Amazon. Um, uh, but, but, the, but the thing we should be looking for in particular, um, our Race to Infinity? Yes, our flagship game is called Race to Infinity and it helps children learn without realising that they're learning and increases their math skills just by playing. Yeah, well, that, that is personal note to self with my two daughters for later on today. But thank you so much, Grace. Really lovely to see you. Uh, Grace Alibody, um, our keynote speaker in our Going Global uh, session. Uh, next up, Dan, come and uh, come and say hi. Founder and CEO of Laundry Heap. Very nice to you. see you. Um, this is very interesting. This is sort of delivery for your clothes, really. You come to us, we give us... We give you our dirty clothes, you sort it out. It's exactly how it works. It's super easy. You can just place an order on our website or mobile app. Uh, we come to your home right away yeah. and uh, you get it back in 24 hours. Right. So how do you decide whether to go deep into a country or whether to go broad but skimming a surface? Because I, I'm very interested because a lot of people just go until we're big, 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 big in Britain. We're not going anywhere else. But you've gone global. Well, I think for a lot of these marketplaces, uh, it makes sense to go where you have the high density of people. Mm -hmm. uh, so like one thing we, we saw, like when we started in London, uh, we saw the service works very well. Of course, you have a lot of people uh, that uh, live nearby. Uh, operationally, it works very well. So like we are confident we can provide great service in a place like London. Um, and this is actually uh, the reason why we, uh, we went to other like tier one cities in other countries before we expanded further uh, mm -hmm. in the UK. Um, so in the UK at the moment, we are greater London uh, Birmingham and Manchester, yes. uh, and we do plan to go to smaller cities in the future, but we want to focus uh, first to places where we can provide great service to our customers. Right, so, so what is learning from your single biggest mistake when it came to going global, what was that? Well, I think um, you do a lot of mistakes as a founder, um, but I think I think like a, a great feature of um, uh, of a founder is that you're very naive, uh, mm. I guess, uh, and you can fail uh, many times. Um, so uh, I mean, I, w I wouldn't be able to pinpoint like one specific one, but uh, I, I think it's um, it's better to try to see how things work. Uh, ultimately, like we've been able to uh, achieve a lot more just by trying and failing than okay. uh, this is very philosophical over, approach. Over, okay. overestimating and uh, over-researching and then, and then going ahead with it. All right. Now, what about, um, one more question, brand extension. I trust you enough to take away my clothes and bring them back nice and clean. You could do other things for me or you should stay focused on laundry? I think you should really stay focused on what you do best. Um, it's, it's a very interesting service because it requires a lot of trust, as you say. It's very different. Like if you order something from Amazon, you don't feel this emotional attachment until you actually open the box and start using it, mm -hmm. and only then it becomes yours. With, with your personal belonging, right? Like our customers are sending us their underwear, right? Ah. So it's really, really personal um, uh, items. So they have, to, uh, they have to know that they're in, uh, like in good hands, uh, ah. that we'll take good care of your items and we'll bring them back. So trust is, trust is really important. Right. So, so on that, sticking with the briefs, as they say, um, what would be, if you could crack it, what would be the single biggest market for you globally? I think, the, I mean, um, like the US is a very big market. Um, so we're in 12 countries. Uh, we are only serving in, uh, in English. So it's, uh, they're all English speaking. Um, uh, we went to places like Dubai and Singapore where yeah. you can do uh, like everything in English. We're also in the Netherlands where operationally you can do uh, in English. Okay. But I, I think the US is, uh, is definitely number, number one as an opportunity. Right, so Laundry Heap is going global, making a thong and dance of it as it goes. Very interesting, Dan Dimitrov. 
the co-founder and chief executive. Thank you very much indeed. Great to meet you. Very nice to see you. Sniggering away to my underwear-related jokes is Sarah French from London Apartments. Very nice to see you. Very nice to see you. Um, can I pay you a, a compliment, Sarah? Of course. You are exceptionally good, I think, at London Apartments at bringing together cohorts of people. Yes because they learn from each other. Absolutely. So can we talk a bit about that? Because it, it hasn't been well, picked up enough. No, it hasn't been picked up. And what we've found over the years of bringing these cohorts together is that for businesses, if, if you, for founders and entrepreneurs, this is their baby. Mm. And it takes a village. Well, with companies, it takes an ecosystem. Yes, so yeah. bringing those companies together to forge those relationships, work together, share knowledge, blood, sweat and tears stories. Talk you know. about the downs as well as the ups, right? Absolutely talk about the downs because yeah. it's those downs, you know, they one, they can support each other through it and they yeah. can be, you know, each other's greatest cheerleaders, oh. but they can also learn from each other and those mistakes and pitfalls. Right. Can I recommend the Mayor's International Business Programme? It is first class. Um, Personal question, does the trade mission have a future? And if so, what does it look like? Because let's be honest, they're very, very interesting. They are interesting. It's a great way to bring the companies together for such a, an intense week uh, of non-stop programming. Great opportunities. Mm. Um, but it's, you know, we've been doing it virtually. Right. Last week, we've done a, a physical trade mission out to the Middle East. So mm. we was out in Dubai. Fantastic. All the companies are on a, a huge high get in on a plane, go into meetings, meeting new companies. But I think the approach, there's an opportunity cost, yeah. right? So it's, I think for us at the Mayor's International Business Programme, it will be a much more blended approach. Interesting, so virtual as well. Sometimes the best missions are exchanges really, aren't they? Of Where course. we learn from each other. Of course. Mm, interesting, so London and Partners continues to smash it. What, what, what do we want people to be thinking about Britain in this moment, Sarah? Because we are open for business and we, we, we might be an island, but we're a connected island. We are a connected island. I, I think there are so many talented, innovative companies out there. I mean, we've seen VC raises last year, record highs. Yeah. Um, there is so much talent. Um, so I think for companies uh, globally looking at UK business, I think, you know, this is where the talent is at. Yeah, absolutely. Real innovation. Yeah, and, and, and let's reconnect if it has been a bit too absolutely. long. Absolutely. Yeah, good. Very good to see you, you. in real life today, and Sarah you. French. Very cool.